Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, October 16th, 2020. I am excited to inform you that Commentary Magazine has closed its November issue, our 75th anniversary issue, packed with fantastic stuff, uh, articles about Commentary's history by Matt Continetti and Joseph Epstein. We have articles by Josh Moravchik and... Uh, John Tobin on on the uh, cult of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, Barton Swaim on the problem with American elites, Terry Teachout on Cary Grant, so much good stuff. It'll be up online in the next couple of days, our 75th anniversary issue. We're really proud of it. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And in Los Angeles today, because he will be appearing on Real Time with Bill Maher, Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. From my palatial suite in Beverly Hills. Hello, Very John. exciting. Like, Noah actually took a plane. Like, I haven't been on a plane since, I don't know when, December? Something like that. Something like, you know, it's the longest I ever have not been on a plane in 40 years. If you have very low expectations of the experience... It meets your expectations. <laughs> Excellent. So, um, of course, last... And I did have a service puppy next to me, too. Oh, a service puppy. <laughs> it's lovely. That's sweet. That is... There's nothing better. There's nothing better. There's, but you're supposedly not supposed to pet a service puppy. You let me. Don't they always have signs on them that say, don't touch the dog, don't talk to the dog, like they're trying to train the dog? I don't know. It's like a drug dog. Oh, it was a drug dog. This is okay. just an emotional support animal. They're snuggly. Okay. So, of course, there were the two competing town halls last night. Uh, Biden with George Stephanopoulos on ABC. Trump with Savannah Guthrie on NBC. Uh, Trump was treated as a hostile witness. And Biden was, of course, treated with kid gloves. Uh, and... It's a Rorschach test. If you like Trump, you thought he did great and that Savannah Guthrie was unfair. And if you like Biden, uh, you say, boy, he's nice and empathetic and willing to say things that Trump would never say. Like, well, look, if I lose, it probably means I was a lousy candidate, which is kind of an impressive thing for a politician to say in some fashion or other. Um, the only news, as far as I can tell, was that uh, Trump uh, asked about the QAnon conspiracy theory, first said he didn't know anything about it, and then said he, 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 they don't like pedophilia, and neither does he, so that seems like a, a, a good thing. Uh, so he does know something about it, having said he knew nothing about it, uh, which the is bad. That, but the best part about that was he had – it was in the same breath – with which he sort of extricated himself from the white supremacist stuff. You know, right. he was asked about uh, why do you hesitate to, to, to renounce um, uh, white supremacy? And he goes, I always, I, I've been, I always denounce white supremacy. I've been saying that forever, but you know, those QAnon guys, they're onto something. Yeah. You know, they, they, they really don't like pedophilia. Yeah. Um, so that wasn't good as a, practical matter it wasn't a good answer unless uh he believes and in fact we have a really great piece in the november issue of commentary by rob long about the about the box office success of the QAnon conspiracy theory believed in by millions the sort of thing that hollywood actually 
you know, went to town with in the 1970s, these broad conspiracy theories about a government at the highest reaches doing terrible things. Um, and that uh, basically if QAnon were uh, uh, an opening weekend at the box office, it would make about $63 million. <laughs> so, I mean, maybe maybe there is something weirdly sensible in him uh, dog whistling to the QAnon followers and hoping that maybe they'll turn out to vote for him. Um, that's a pretty horrifying thing to think, but nonetheless, knowing Trump, he could think that. And what's more, not only could he think that, but there is reason to believe, as I've been saying since you know 2015, 2016, that uh, Trump's uh, shooting off like a rocket when he got into the race in 2015 is because he had spent years in the thickets of conspiracy theory, right-wing uh, radio and television, building up a fan base with Alex Jones with the WWE, with all kinds of uh, radio stations and programs that you've never, and, you know, and Fox and Friends getting more into the mainstream, and that people just didn't see these numbers coming for him, uh, that, that, that he would come in and basically he'd have three, four million people uh, w- ready and willing to vote for him right from the get-go, which is more than any other Republican had at the very start. Um, so, you know, uh, if he's going back to play his greatest hits from 2015, 2016, doing that kind of uh, dog whistling and, and and waving and all that played a role in his success then. So who knows if it's going on now? Uh, so I've now like uh, filibustered here. So somebody, somebody well, says I was, something. I was, you know? was going to say, you said, you, you said that it was a... Uh... Rorschach tests, you know, if you like Trump, you you liked his performance last night. If you like Biden, you thought he was, you know, statesmanlike. Um, but that leaves so many of us, John, in the position I feel I'm in now. I don't like either one of them. So <laughs> watching it, I feel like I can, I can, uh, I, I agree with you about the QAnon response that Trump gave is ridiculous. Um, he, he was once again, pretty terrible about defending the administration on COVID. Uh, but Biden was not super impressive. I mean, I think we're setting the bar way too low because, which which in this election we'll have to since he's up against Trump. But he said a couple of things that bothered me. Once again, he weaseled his way around answering the question of whether or not he would pack the Supreme Court. Um, and he he weaseled around in an extremely dishonest way, I think, this time, because he said, well, before you vote, you'll know my answer. Well, people are already voting. Millions of people have already voted. So that's ridiculous. 17, the, the, the record today suggests that 17 million people have already voted. Right. So he said so that and once again. October just, yeah. 15th, 17 million people have already voted. That is, that is somewhere between you know, uh, 15 and 18% of the, uh, if we have really high turnout. Right. And the other thing he did, that's a new, oh, go ahead. That's a new construction, is it not? Yes. I mean, he had previously said, you'll know my position after the because election. Because he sounded so contemptuous when he said that previous thing. So now he said, yes, you have a right to know, and I'll tell you before the election, before you vote. And it's, and it's so particularly hypocritical because his argument against why um, Amy Coney Barrett should not um be be appointed is because people are already voting, right? right is- exactly. <laughs> uh, the other thing um, he did is distance, try to distance himself again from his own signature piece of legislation. The one thing you can point to that Joe Biden did as a senator, which is the crime bill, uh, distancing himself from that. And then for our for our hardcore listeners here on the Commentary Magazine podcast, he actually iterated something that that we have all. Uh, 
pointed out as being a ridiculous response to police discharging their weapons against criminal suspects, which is he said, we have to train the cops to shoot people in the leg. That, that no, <laughs> just no. Yeah. So I thought that was sort of amusing slash horrifying. But his, his distancing himself from the crime bill to me is... He, he never quite seems comfortable doing that, right? Because this time what he said is, well, yeah, I, I, I regret some of that because of how the states implemented it. But honestly, a lot of what was in that crime bill was good. And people forget just how high the crime rate was when that bill went through. So I don't know why he can't find a way to talk about that, that at least acknowledges the impact it had on crime rates and on, on you know the transformation, particularly in some cities. But well, because it's now become shorthand for right. uh, for this notion that uh, incarceration went too far, uh, the application of criminal law went too far, uh, that we criminalized things that shouldn't have been criminalized. He can't say he can't disavow the bill entirely because he wants to take credit for its liberal social uh, values, uh, violence against women stuff, uh, midnight basketball, various aspects of the bill that liberals still like. Uh, and he wants to be able to go around and say that he did. So, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, the shooting people in the leg thing, I'm just going to go back to talking about this for 25 <laughs> seconds. Anyone who's taught how to shoot a gun, you know, in a, le- in, a, in a potentially lethal situation is told, cops everywhere are told to shoot, aim for the trunk of the person of the body, uh, in order to minimize the possibility of a bullet going astray and that you want to shoot the largest part of the body. If you're going to have to shoot someone to bring them down, you want to, sh- you want to aim at the largest part of the body so that if you try to aim for an arm or a leg, you are much more likely to have the bullet miss and then go wherever it will being a projectile. And so for public safety reasons, you are trying to limit the scope of the effect of the bullet to the person at whom the bullet is aimed. And this is a Hollywood fantasy that people can be trained to be sharpshooters and know how to shoot some, you know, limb. This is James Coburn in the Magnificent Seven or something like that, or, you know, Gene Wilder in Blazing Saddles, who just so great with a gun that he can shoot anything at will. Uh, and you know, sharpshooting is a is is riflery. It's not with a pistol, and so the whole thing is just appalling. And by the way, it's all disingenuous anyway, because the whole point is to say, no, no, the cops are great, and we'll teach them how to do magical things to make sure that they don't do anything that you don't like in the future. And so, in that sense, he does it in order to harmonize liberal distrust of police now with his refusal to say that the cops are systemically racist or that they are or that they are bad i think that might be a little too charitable it might give him a little too much credit he he may actually have a conception of firearms training that is uh fantastical and and hollywood-esque because what did he say about home defense when you're when you're threatened in your own home with a sh- you, you get your shotgun and you fire it through the door. He literally said that. He said, <laughs> you need to discharge your shotgun through your own door, not understanding, A, how shotguns work, and B, why that's a terrible but idea, no. and you're probably murdering somebody <laughs> and killing a lot but of them, no, uh, possibly killing other people around you. Like, but he did say that. That's not, a, that's not like a, it's become something of a myth. People on the left think that's like he never actually said that. The quote is, 
if you want someone away from your house, just fire the shotgun through the door. <laughs> well, no, uh, this does not inspire dad. confidence in his reform the police tactics. He was out his with his dad, and his dad said to him, Joey, <laughs> if you love people, you're going to fire the gun through the door. <laughs> he did one of those, my dad told me a story last night that your head is going to explode from if you didn't hear it. I will say one Because according the- to Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., son of Joseph Robin, Robinette Biden, that they just happened to be out walking the streets of Scranton, Pennsylvania one day, and they saw in 1950, and they saw two men kissing romantically. And his dad said, Joey... They just love each other. Now, I will bet a million dollars that that never happened. There were no two men standing on a street corner in Scranton, Pennsylvania, making out in 1950. And his dad didn't say, his dad, the daily communicant at the Catholic Church, did not say, They're just, they just love each other, Joey. Biden, anytime Biden says, my dad said, Joey... What follows is a cock and bull story. It is a cock and bull story. His father is like, I don't know, his father is, uh, it's like when Trump says, I got a friend, I got all these friends, my friends tell me X, and you know, basically just made them up, A, he doesn't have any friends, I mean, he knows a lot of people, but he doesn't have any friends, and it's just this like, and the word Joey is the tell, so if he becomes president for the next four years, just Wait till he says Joey, and then you know whatever is about to follow is a is a, is a lie. So if someone needs to start a Twitter, like people are saying, uh, I say start a start a Twitter account right now that says Joey says or yeah, <laughs> or yeah, My dad said Joey. My dad said Joey. One point on his crime thing that I will give him props for for last night is Biden did pretty strongly say I don't want to defund the police, and I appreciated hearing that message coming out of his mouth very clearly without any stories of you know. His dad didn't tell him that, and he, you know, but he still wants to shoot him in the leg. So right. maybe the defunding okay. will be about public education for people like Joe Biden. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm interrupting, but I want to introduce something. I didn't watch any of these town halls, so I can't comment on the on the the, the substance of them. But preceding this, there was this big liberal freakout. We talked about it yesterday about how NBC News was stepping all over Joe Biden. They are giving Donald Trump a push and Donald Trump is going to use the ratings of these things to, to dunk all over Biden as though that has any relevance whatsoever. But these people who live in media think media is just the be all end all. So what happens? We have preliminary ratings. The ABC town hall with Joe Biden drew 2.3 million more viewers than Donald Trump's town hall. No, not according to Trump. Don't worry. Well, right. Don't worry. This was the most watched town hall in history. This is the most watched town hall in history. But that tells you, I think that does, it's not, ratings don't matter. Stipulate it. But that does tell you something about how exhausted everyone is with Donald Trump. Yeah. Okay. They're just over it. So, um, meanwhile... So here's the, the the thing, Abe. This thing that everybody talks about is how there seems to be an enthusiasm difference between Trump supporters and Biden supporters when you ask them who if they're enthusiastic about their vote and that the Trump people are incredibly enthusiastic about their vote and the Biden people are less enthusiastic about their vote. Now, 
there are two problems with these numbers, one of which is that enthusiasm, as we actually learned in 2012, when the Romney voter was significantly more enthusiastic than the Obama voter, uh, is that the unenthusiastic voter casts a vote and it counts for one vote and the enthusiastic voter casts a vote and it's one vote and it counts for one vote. So enthusiasm is a terrible gauge. It's all based on a theory that if it rains, the unenthusiastic voter won't come out and vote. But that <clears throat> is not really evident. If you think that what happened to Hillary in 2016 on election day was that the voter was unenthusiastic, I don't think that's what happened. I think what happened is that the voter was reminded that she was a crook or that they thought she was a crook by Comey's reopening of the investigation. And so it's not that they were unenthusiastic. It's that they were like, nah, I'm not going to vote for her. It was like touch and go whether they were going to vote for her. And then they decided not to vote for her because they really didn't like her. Biden, you could sort of like, but not be enthusiastic about. But okay, so that's 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 number one. So the uh, Trump voter is enthusiastic. The Biden voter is unenthusiastic. We got numbers uh, over the last ten days uh, for second quarter fund. Um, you know, basically fundraising, political fundraising through the end of September. The Democratic Party is generating support at a level that we have never seen even in you know by by a factor of I don't even know what factor that we have never seen about a billion five has been raised by democrats from the house senate and at the presidential level since june a billion five and that's hard money we're not talking about dark money packs you know uh, 501c5s and 501c4s we are talking about actual hard money in increments smaller than $5,000, a billion five. Now, maybe the average voter is not particularly enthusiastic for Biden, but there is a grassroots, that is a grassroots number, a billion five. That is not, you know, elite. That's not the top, that's not the, you know, 0.1%. What we are seeing here is a grassroots effort on the part of liberals in this country and maybe a few like people who don't like Trump um, from the middle and the right who are doing whatever they can to punish the Republican Party and Trump for what's gone on over the last four years. And that is an incredibly significant number. Abe? Yeah, I have zero problem believing that um, Biden doesn't generate enthusiasm. I mean, I'm certain that almost no one is enthusiastic about Biden. And that would be a big problem for him if it were not for the fact that I think people are, as those numbers tell, extraordinarily enthusiastic about getting rid of Trump. That is where the enthusiasm is. And um, some people say that sort of negative enthusiasm is not enough to get you um, over the finish line. I don't know if that's true. and And I don't know if it was true if that if this year that is one of the yeah as John says you know each election kind of writes its own it's it's sort of new new rules um, if 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 it ever were true I don't know that this year um, we might see uh, it no longer be true um, by the way there there is a um, I think a parallel effect to that among some uh, vaguely on the right I'm not talking about the people who do love Trump who are 
wildly enthusiastic about him. But there are also great number of people out there who um, don't like him, but are very, to just stay with the term, enthusiastic about keeping the left as they see it and all, all of its representatives and associates out of the halls of power. Yeah, but they're not donating, <clears throat> unfortunately. Um, I mean, if you see, you know, you go to, uh, it's not just the, it's not just the Biden campaign. It's not just the candidates and the committees or the ca- committees uh, nationally and, and regionally. It's also the candidates, particularly on the Senate level, which is uh, really competitive this year. The Republicans and incumbents, uh, Republican incumbents across the board have been outraised sometimes by twice as much as their challengers. You know, the big headline fundraiser of this cycle is Jamie Harrison in South Carolina, who raised $60 million. Um, and he's to, to uh, Lindsey Graham's 28. And there's a lot of other stories similar, like the, the only other candidate who's who's kind of a bright spot here is uh, Michigan's John James, who's who raised roughly parity with uh, his the the incumbent senator, the Gary right. Peters. So, right. James is the Republican, However, Peters is the Democrat. So the flip side of that is that they've raised all this money. But they burned it. They've spent it all. Most of them have roughly the same on hand, cash on hand, which is money in the bank, as Republicans right now. So the Senate is competitive. Democrats are looking really good in the polls, but they're not blowing anybody away. The airwaves are already saturated and they've, they've, they've blown their wad. They've shot this cash off. So to the extent that it was going to have an effect, it has had its effect. Well, okay, so, but uh, Harrison isn't the only one, right? Uh, Teresa Greenfield, who's running against Joni Erds in Iowa, has raised close to $40 million. These are not normal numbers, and it is certainly not she normal. She raised $28 million in Q4, and, which is four times what Joni Ernst right. raised. Now, this is... But right. she has $9 million on hand now right. to, to Joni Ernst's four. But this is not normal because ordinarily, one of the reasons that we talk about the advantage of incumbency isn't fame or something like that. It is money. It is that incumbents generally raise more money than their challengers because people want to keep, because they are more likely than not to win and people want to keep in their good odor and donors and bundlers, people who raise money, you know, in groups to uh, get money for politics. And that is the way it has always been. And things are changing because uh, it now appears that you are better off in fundraising terms being an insurgent with the means, the direct means for fundraising that the internet presents. You are better off. Like Jamie Harrison, the, 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 these numbers are insane, and you may say that he's burned it. But just getting to a point at which it is now an, uh, you know, it is now an unclear proposition whether Lindsey Graham is going to win re-election in in South Carolina uh, is un, is incredibly impressive. Now, the, the, the last poll that we saw, which I think was yesterday, is the New York Times-Siena actually has uh, uh, Graham up six, which is the best poll that Graham has had in, in uh, a month in South Carolina and does suggest that, you know, if it's, if it's anywhere near, near right, that, um, that Harrison has an uphill climb from now for the next two and a half weeks to get himself, you know, to, to, to actually get over the top. Um, but I mean, he by right should be 10 or 12 or 15 points behind. And so that money, I think, has probably been, you know, well spent. However, it's however it's been spent. I, I mean, I don't know, but uh, but you would uh, you, you would think uh, basically he had to get himself uh, to parity on name ID and stuff like that, 
And I, I sort of doubt, given the fact that the Amy Coney Barrett hearing generated almost no controversy, uh, Graham would probably be better served if he could have been more of a sort of forceful tribune against this liberal onslaught, against this very fine uh, person nominated for uh, for the judgeship. And he didn't really get that this week because uh, the hearing was rather, you know, sedate, uh, particularly by comparison with, obviously, with with Brett Kavanaugh's hearing. So He did get a uh, hug from Dianne Feinstein, though, so... Yeah, which of course is is the new version of of Charlie Crist, uh, uh, Chris Christie hugging Obama or Charlie right. Crist hugging Obama. Um, the the denunciations of Dianne Feinstein for giving Lindsey Graham a hug yesterday from we're talking about Hillary Clinton's press secretary Ben Rhodes. I mean, people saying she she's so senile that she hugged L- Lindsey Graham, who should be considered you know a leper, and you can't. I mean. We are living, this is terrible. We live in a terrible time. It's sad. We live in a terrible moment. Like, are you rolling your eyes at me, Noah? You're rolling your (laughs) eyes at me. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, there are terrible times in human history, and this is probably not exactly one that you would. I wasn't comparing. If you you were living behind the Rawlsian veil, you would choose to live in 2020, all its nightmares aside. Okay. Nevertheless. Nevertheless. These these are the these are the same people people who are engaged in this kind of partisan warfare all day long behave this way and think this way because partisan warfare drives you crazy right so that's because terrible they don't, they don't have any collegial relationships with people who don't agree with them that's terrible but I mean this notion so she hugs him so what so so it's not like she doesn't vote however they want her to vote or anything like that it is this notion that. What has changed now is that we are to treat people with whom we disagree like they are diseased, leprous monsters. Yeah, how dare she be civil is is the issue. Yeah, or friendly. Right. I mean, and 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 I don't know. I mean, I don't want to get you know sort of like uh, sentimental here because you know I don't care about Diane Feinstein and how she feels, or I care about Lindsey Graham and how he feels, or anything like that. What I care about is this this enforcement, this social shaming enforcement of this idea that if you ever look as though you have any kind of decent spirited communication or contact with someone with whom you disagree, that you are betraying the cause or the side. Not that you heatedly defend your own position and that you oppose theirs and that you, whatever, but that you are obliged to behave rudely, unpleasantly, snidely, and ad hominemly towards somebody who has a different opinion of, from you. Well, and I think the reason it, it struck me as sad that that was the response about e- even setting this apart from the political class, which I think that I, I understand Noah's eye roll. I mean, this has been, uh, politicians play various games with this sort of, you know, displays of collegiality all the time. But this has infected the way that average Americans deal with each other, too. It's exacerbated online. But even if you take it offline, I mean, people are, we, we've had these discussions on the podcast, you know, for a long time about the civility question. It started, a lot of it came to uh, the public's attention right after Trump was elected and people were big, administration officials were getting shouted down at restaurants, but it's really kind, there's a terrible trickle-down effect that's happened in the last few years where the combativeness and the aggressiveness and the 
what I mainly see when it's regular people interacting is the mistrust. And that is sad because we you should be able to strongly disagree with someone and yet have mutual respect as human beings and be able to listen and then respond and, and agree to disagree on some of the things that actually aren't as important as maintaining a certain level of civility and comedy. And that's that's been degraded. And certainly Trump is to blame for some of it, but we're to blame as people for allowing it to happen and for playing out the, our worst impulses, particularly online. Okay. Scolding ended. <laughs> Absolutely. Now let, let me just, let me just uh, take a minute to, to talk to you guys about today's sponsor, uh, the Bradley speaker series from the Bradley foundation. Americans are navigating through several unanticipated crises this year. We the People is a new Bradley Speaker series that offers insights and ideas on the current challenges we face from some of the remarkable organizations the Bradley Foundation supports. Visit bradleyfdn.org liberty to watch their most recent video episode on the Electoral College featuring Trent England. England is the founder and executive director of Save Our States, a group dedicated to educating Americans about the Electoral College and defending it from the national popular vote campaign. In this episode... Trent England explains the history of the Electoral College, how it works, and what happens if the rules change. The discussion is an insightful analysis of the many merits in the way the president is elected. That's Bradley with an L-E-Y at the end, fdn.org slash liberty to watch the video. New episodes will debut weekly, so come back often and subscribe to their YouTube channel to be notified whenever a new one is posted. And we thank the Bradley Foundation for sponsoring the Commentary Magazine podcast uh so there is a theory there i i was on the phone last night with a friend of mine who has been involved in republican politics for uh, 25 years and is now uh, a donor and a someone who uh, communicates at very high levels uh with people in the republican party and i said to him just give me a give me give me do you know anybody who has a scenario a plausible and realistic scenario that says Trump wins on November 3rd. And he said there's two things that he's heard. One of them reflects a piece that uh, Tom Edsel had in the New York Times the other day, uh, and that Dave Wasserman of um, the Cook, is it the Cook Political Report? Is that where Dave Wasserman is? Anyway, uh, he's redistrict on on Twitter, um, has been putting out, he's the guy who counts basically absentee votes and early votes and everything, and he's a real wonk on these matters. And he has been pointing out that in state after state where uh, registrations for voting can be done by party, that um, in Florida, in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, and somewhere else, Republicans are out registering Democrats. When you, if you take account of new registrations to vote and that uh, this is something that everybody is seeing. Democrat Wasserman is himself probably aligned with the Democratic Party. So we're, we're seeing stuff that y- you can't deny. And then this harmonizes with a, the theory that there's a lot of shy Trump voting or that, you know, people are coming out are more enthusiastic about Trump and that they're not registering new Democrats in the way that they need to. Uh, so that's one theory. And then the other theory goes to what... Um, the Trafalgar, the polls, the polling firm uh, that surprised everybody in 2016 and in 2018 by uh, seeing uh, the Trump surge in a couple of places, including Michigan, 
where no one else saw it and therefore, you know, sort of got Michigan right in 2016 when nobody else did and saw Ron DeSantis beating uh, Andrew Gillum in the Florida governor's race in 2018 when I think Gillum had been ahead in 40 of the previous 41 polls. Um, so this guy, Robert uh, Kahali, the tr- lead pollster at uh, Trafalgar, uh, believes that there is a huge shy Trump vote and he says he sees Trump winning uh, Michigan by one, Arizona by four, uh, and Florida by two, and and, uh, and Ohio by four. And if all of this happens and the map stays where people think it is, Trump wins 276 to 262. And largely on the basis of not only a shy Trump vote, but a vote that is invisible to pollsters because it will involve people voting who have never voted before. That is the that is the only these two combined are the plausible case for Trump winning based though every other piece of social science data suggests otherwise, with no news intervening between now and election day to help Trump over Biden. Uh, your reactions. Well, they got they did get 18 right. Um, the expanded Senate majority was something of a shock. It wasn't, a, you know, it didn't seem to take anybody off guard because Democrats won the, the House. And that was the, you know, something they could hang their hat on. But I don't think people expected the scale of uh, the, the margins that some Senate challengers got, uh, particularly in states that were favored to win, like in Missouri, Josh Hawley won by, I think, I think six points, something along those lines where the polling was much closer heading into the race. And they did get Florida right, which was uh, every pollster, as you said, got it wrong. So it's not as though there isn't any evidence to suggest that that could happen. Um, but I don't I don't know how uh, Trafalgar has Trump losing Pennsylvania. Their own polling has him down in Pennsylvania, whereas they had they were the only one of the few, if not the only pollster to have Trump winning Pennsylvania in 2016. And I don't know how you win Michigan and don't win Pennsylvania. You mean this- they're very different states. They have different electoral compositions. The, the electorate is a different composition, but we are talking about what we've seen in the polling is a uniform swing in the Midwest, uh, including Pennsylvania, which is arguably the Northeast, but we'll call it Midwest for now. And that means that it's not a, that we're not seeing a uniform swing, that they're seeing something that's much more distinct and individual to the Rust Belt, uh, individual Rust Belt states, which we're not seeing in the polls. So it's a big bet. Right. Okay. Abe, as somebody who is more sympathetic to the shy Trump uh, social shaming, social desirability problem. What do you think of this scenario? I think it's entirely possible, <clears throat> but I, I honestly, I, I plead sort of complete um, ignorance when it comes to actually calling it either way. I, I, I don't know, but I, I, I don't think it is out of the realm of possibility um, at all. Right. Christine, you have any, uh, you have any thoughts? I just wonder, um, you know, in 2016, what a lot of the pollsters obviously missed was um, the enthusiasm that people had for Trump and, and the fact that they some of them were sort of ashamed of their of the, the fact that they found Trump appealing, but went and voted for him. And they, they missed all these uh, non-college educated white voters in the Midwest. But this time, I'm not sure the pollsters are able to capture what we started this podcast with when Noah described, you know, the the ratings differential uh, between the two town halls last night, which is 
the exhaustion factor. I wonder if the exhaustion factor with just the chaos that now is, you know, affixed permanently to Trump because of the pandemic, because of his style, all of it. I just feel like that might outweigh um, uh, the enthusiasm that that people might not want to admit to a pollster. So I'm not a polling expert, so I won't weigh in on whether I think that Trafalgar is correct here. Um, But I just, I don't know how you quite measure that, but we all feel it, right? Uh, Even Trump supporters feel it to to some extent. So I'm skeptical that that's a path to victory for him. Okay, I'm going to give you the the arguments against it as I as I see it. Though I think, as Abe says, if Trump wins, this will be why he wins, right? I mean that it's the only way that he wins if there's a combination of of uh, you know of um, people being invisible to pollsters for some reason, or lying to pollsters, or pollsters simply not catching um, uh, the enthusiasm barometer through this. Um, you know, through this registration numbers. Okay, here, here, here is the thing. So once you're registered to vote, you're registered to vote, right? You don't have to register fresh in every election. And in 2018, if I remember correctly, Democrats had a fantastic get-out-the-vote campaign in 2018 that led, in part, to this colossal vote for Democratic candidates in 2018, 62 million people voted Democratic in a midterm election in 2018 compared to 53 million for the Republicans. A turnout around 118 million. We haven't seen that ever in the modern age. You know, it was it was by far the largest midterm turnout in 80 years or something like that. Not, nothing like it in percentage terms and certainly these are numbers that presidential elections didn't generate. Like the uh, fewer people voted for Bush v. Gore in t- 2000 than voted in the midterm election in 2018. So those people are all still registered in 2020. They don't have to go and register anew. And so even though they're not distributed properly everywhere, a lot of them are. A lot of them are suburban, and a lot of them are are in suburban districts that went for Trump and are going to go for in places like Michigan, uh, you know, Abigail Spanberger's district and various other places that will be of help to Biden in theory. So um, the fact that there are fewer Democrats to register in 2020 should not be a surprise since, again, if I remember correctly, there was a disproportionate Democratic registry in 2018, and those people are still registered. The other part, which is dark, is Republicans have a need to register more new voters in 2020 because the Republican Party is considerably older than the Democratic Party, which means literally that its voters die between elections. You know, if you if you have a disproportionate vote over the age of 65 or over the age of 75, people are going to die and not vote. Therefore, as is the case with things like magazine circulation, you have to replace the people who depart just to be at par. If they're going to die, you need new registrants to come in just to make sure that your vote level remains even and constant. And if you are demographically more likely to have these people going away, particularly if we're seeing a pandemic and 
voters are going to be less are going to be more hesitant about going to the polls because they fear uh, getting the virus or they haven't gotten their absentee ballots or whatever then the republican party is at a is at a disadvantage demographically and in terms of its following so that's number 1 where the where the registration stuff isn't necessarily going to going to matter or doesn't it doesn't tell or shouldn't be something that 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 gets you so that's number 1 and number 2 if there is a significant shy trump vote or you know social desirability bias as people are too afraid to tell pollsters that they're you know because maybe pollsters will rat on them and tell their employers and they'll get fired or whatever if that's a if that is a real thing it may be measurable in you know large number um however it seems to me that it is far more likely that that number will be measurable in places that Trump doesn't have a prayer of winning, meaning New York City, L.A., you know, the the, the cities where, um, where uh, PC stuff is happening uh, in employment and with all this, probably in Silicon Valley and Calif- places in California – where the Democratic advantage is so enormous that even if people vote for Trump in greater numbers, it will have no effect on the Electoral College whatsoever. Uh, and so if the theory is wrong, these are the two ways the theory would work. The other is like all these pollsters have been doing for the last four years is trying to make up for the mistake that they made in 2016, underestimating the number of Trump voters. And it seems just as likely that they are overestimating them using waiting than they, that they are underestimating them because they can't see these never having voted people because uh, pollsters are now using voter files and things like that to help them come up with people to poll. And obviously, if you've never voted, you're not going to be in a voter file, and therefore you will not show up in some of these polls. There's a reason they do this. It's not because they're biased toward toward um, voters, although they are to some extent, but because the classic way of getting people to get a, a real demographic picture is random calling, and federal law forbids random calling to cell phones. You can't do it. It's against the law to random call a cell phone. So therefore... That's why you could have a large number of people who are being missed because they're only on cell phones and they haven't voted before and you can't reach them. But even if that number is a couple percentage points or even higher than a couple of percentage points, could it really make up for 8% in Michigan? Which is what, if if, if the polling average in Michigan at RCP and at 538 is that is that Biden is winning by eight points, it's one thing to make up four points. It's another thing to make up eight points. Now, you could see polling error and everybody going through a polling error. But an eight-point polling error is a pretty startling polling error when you are actually having these states polled in a way they weren't in 2016. They're being polled much more aggressively, much more frequently uh, because they were missed and because they made the difference in, in 2016. Well, and we haven't seen Trump try to expand his appeal or message in any meaningful way. Um, 
and that's why we were mocking him the other day. I'll continue to mock him for his, please like me. Why won't you just like me to these suburban women voters? But he needs them. I mean, he needs, he actually needs to change some hearts and minds if he's going to even break even. Um, and he, there's no evidence that he's willing to do that. Um, so even if you, if you can fill in some of those gaps with these shy Trump voters, I just, it, I don't see as a numbers game in the electoral college how he overcomes that. And I don't think he overcomes uh, his deficit among women voters this go round. I mean, they just do not like Donald Trump. Um, and I don't think a lot of them think Joe Biden's so great either. But, you know, this is how elections for president in this country, you have one choice or the other and you can or you can write in what Joe Jorgensen. But that, you know, uh, I don't, well, I don't see him making an effort. Thing, by the way, is that there were what, what was it? it was six percent of the vote in 2016 went to third and fourth right. party candidates. Six right. Percent. There will be two or three percent that goes that direction. But remember, Biden right now nationally is commonly polling above 50. He is at 51, 52 percent. I think the polling averages have him at 52.1 or 52.2 percent. That would mean that Trump is at 44, 45, and then there's three others. Now, Trump won the Electoral College with 45.1, was it? 45.4. I can't remember what the overall number was, but Hillary only got 48. She didn't get 52. She wasn't four points higher. Like I, you know, he, he could thread the needle because a vote did not show up for her or people went for the third and fourth parties. Well, so Nate Cohen did an analysis <clears throat> right after the 2018 elections and showed that a polling was Pulling undercounted Republicans in both 2018 and 2016 in a couple of states that are really key, most notably Florida, big time miss in Florida, but Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, and Ohio, those are the real competitive states this year. And that's a real good news for, for Trump. The, the opposite problem is that they undercounted Republicans in states like Arizona, Nevada, Texas. Um, and that's basically it. But that, that still looks like, I mean, I, I would have to do the, the map, but that still looks to me like a, a Biden victory. Right. Well, so our friend... But a narrow, narrow yeah. one. So our friend Ala Pundit, uh, I believe former employer of Noah Rothman, uh, in... A, a colleague, unfortunately, whom I've never colleague. met. Colleague. Yeah, no one knows who Ala Pundit is. Yeah. Okay, anyway, Ala Pundit is like the masked singer of the internet. Um Except the mass singer eventually takes off his helmet and shows you who 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 he or she is. But uh, as as Alapundit writes, if all of these results, meaning the Trafalgar polling results held on election day, assuming no unlikely Biden victories elsewhere, Trump would win two seventy six to two sixty two. But as Alapundit writes, don't get too cocky. A polling miss of two or three points would be perfectly ordinary for any pollster. Yet Kahali's prediction depends upon him missing nowhere. If Biden fares just two points better in Michigan than Trafalgar expects, he'll be president. If he's three points better in Florida or North Carolina, he'll be president comfortably. So Trump only wins if he threads this needle that all, all existing evidence suggests he might be able to do in one place, but I'm not sure he can do it in, in all these places. And that's where you have this thing where, Noah, you said, if we're seeing Pennsylvania slip out of 
uh, Trump's hands, then it's hard to see how Michigan goes for Trump because these states have common uh, demographic and cultural and, you know, economic realities, and therefore they sort of vote alike. That's why Trump won Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. But Florida, Arizona, and Michigan do not have much in common, right? So, well, yeah, they I mean, really don't. Well, no, Arizona and Florida and Michigan are very discontinuous states, and so the idea that you could Arizona and Florida aren't necessarily—they have an older electorate. Older and wider electorate. I mean, we've been talking about white working class voters here a lot because that's the big thing from 2016. But what's not being discussed and what should be discussed a lot more often are uh, black voters. Um, 2016, Hillary Clinton lost the 2016 election mostly because of black voters. Black voters did not show up in Michigan to make up the, the what, 20,000 votes that she needed to get over, over the finish line there. And we just don't have any evidence that African-Americans are not enthusiastic about voting for Joe Biden, just the opposite. Well, there was one question in the town hall last night from a a 30-year-old African-American voter who basically said, how how can you assure me that I'm not going to get killed by a cop, essentially, or like, you know, that my body is safe, some language like that. And Biden then did a 15-minute answer. And what I was struck by was how this question uh, assumes a set of presumptions about the African-American vote altogether that I think are very questionable, which is that they're, they've all been radicalized by George Floyd. Everybody from, you know, at every age level has been radicalized and wants to know what you're going to do and suppress the cops and all of that. And what we saw in the Democratic primary was that the African-American vote, much to everybody's surprise in some ways, was the realistic and stabilizing vote of the election. That fanciful projections of ideological change and progressivism were of no interest to black voters who went for Biden in overwhelming numbers over Sanders or whoever, including Cory Booker and Kamala Harris and all of this, because they wanted somebody who you know, had a stamp of approval and who could win and why that would be any different in the wake of George Floyd and all these protests, why they would stay home against Trump uh, in the wake of all these protests when black voters made it very clear that they wanted a winner. They didn't want to have a, an ideological pageant made out of the democratic primary process I just don't think there, there's any evidence that that has changed at all since February. So it's it's always a mistake to talk about demographic blocks as though they're a monolith and they all think the same. That's just not true. Um, but when all, all growing up throughout my entire adult life, African-American voters on, among Democrats were the most progressive block because they're mostly economically progressive. Their economic prescriptions are far more uh, communitarian and social than any conservative uh, prescription would allow. But socially, they're not progressive. They're not liberals. They're not woke, um, by and large. Those voices on television, almost to a person, deviate from that from that spectrum. But nevertheless, you know, most African-American voters, I think, um, it polls would suggest, don't go in for this woke revisionism. 
that a lot of the primary focused on. Uh, it was a real effort to get to the left of everyone else among so- on social issues, not just economic policy. And that's where Joe Biden really held his held his ground throughout the primary and, and was rewarded for it. Well, and that's, I think, the reason why he's been pretty, the, he, he'll weasel around other policy issues, but he is, he, he has done his very best in, in the current woke climate to still seem tough on crime, pro-police, because you're right, African-American voters are also, they're, they're more religious and they are more culturally conservative on a lot of the issues that the woke left would not abide were they being, if you, if you describe these as white working class men and then describe the positions, they would see that as absolutely anathema to their mission. But that's part of their uh, coalition right there. Right. So, um, so we have, uh, I think it's 19 days until election day. We have 17, some 15, 16, 17 million votes already being cast. We don't know where that number is going to get to by election day. Um, but it's very hard to, you know, people say the thing that's interesting about polls that they're a snapshot of the day, right? In other words, how would you vote today? Well, if the polls don't change and they're at all accurate, Biden is going to win a landslide because people are voting. 10% of people have already voted. And if the polls are accurate, then Biden has gotten 52% of them and Trump has gotten 43% of them already and that so he we're beginning somewhere with Biden 9 points up the way that and and so Trump not only has to win he has to make up the deficit in the vote that's already been cast and he will have to make up a deficit on election day in votes that have already been cast now people in previous cycles have overestimated the meaning of large early turnout, right? In Florida, one of the things that that absolutely gobsmacked everybody in 2016 was that the early vote, which we knew because it was all registered by party, was so heavily Democratic that Hillary was going into election day having won. She basically won. And then, of course, it turned out that she didn't win at all. And Trump won Florida. I, I think he won by two points, but it was kind of easy. Like, in other words, once the, once they were, once Miami Dade came in not as heavily for, you know, uh, for Hillary or whoever, wherever it was, Broward, I can't remember which county didn't do what it was supposed to do. It was already basically clear that Trump, Trump was going to win because people had overestimated the meaning of the early vote, which again has, if you cast an early vote, that means you're not casting a vote on the day of. It's not that your vote counts for more. Um, But in this case, if 60 million people vote by election day, let's say, they are going to be voting based on the political reality of the moment at which they vote. And at the moment at which people are voting now, Trump looks like a loser. And then you have this, you have that weird effect where people sort of like to vote for somebody that they think is a winner. And, you know, after, after elections, they you go back and you repoll people and they, they lie about who they voted for and say they voted for the winner way more than they did in fact vote for the winner. Um, so that's another weird thing that is going on here. Um, and, you know, we'll know this is all fun spec, you know, basically we're just, blathering the way biden is blathering just to get to november 3rd we're also blathering to get to november 3rd well i mean you sort of the the really great thing about the president is that he he shows you his hand he 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 doesn't play anything close to his chest so we know every internal polling 
problem that he encounters because he says it outright. He says, you know, suburban women, why don't you just love me? And, you know, seniors, I'm a senior. I love you seniors. Don't you love me too? I mean, he, we know the demos where he's down, the yeah. traditionally Republican demos where he's down. And those are two traditionally Republican demos that you can't lose. I don't know how you win a national election as a, as a Republican without suburban voters. He also voters admitted that he senior. was losing in Iowa and, and Michigan and Arizona, right? Because in all three places, really? he said, I'm never going to come here again. If you people don't vote for me, I'm never coming here again. What the hell do I have to come here for? He basically said, so it's like saying, you better, I'm blackmailing you because I'm never going to return to this state if you don't vote for me. That's a way of saying my my evidence suggests that I'm not going to win here. Yeah. So, I mean, the Biden campaign has been profoundly lethargic, but as you said, you know, they're just treading water and that's all they feel like they have to do, you know, so Kamala Harris getting off the trail as a result of members of her uh, entourage getting COVID had no effect. Isn't a bad thing. It had no effect on a bad thing. No, they would. They love to retreat. Why yeah. wouldn't they want to retreat from the trail and just freeze the race? Okay. Do we think there's going to be a debate next week? The Biden has now insisted that Trump will have to Trump will have to be tested for Biden to appear on a stage with him. Now, okay, so Trump says he thinks he's immune, and everyone's like, oh, you can't say you're immune. He's basically immune now. I'm sorry. It's two, three weeks, whatever, after the diagnosis. He's clearly recovered. He's immune. So now the question is, is Biden really going to hold firm to this? Is he? Because now, now Biden is the one who's going to end this, end this debate. You could argue that Biden ended the debate this week by insisting that Trump, by doing it virtually, when... I mean, we saw Trump last night. There's no way that he's sick. He's not. There's no way that he's shedding virus right now. He's himself. He's totally. He's totally himself. So well, there I don't really care. By the way, they can have one or not have one. You know, whatever. But well, well there are three people now involved in the Biden Harris campaign who have tested positive. Um, so it could be. It could be. The, the objections could come, uh, you know, not not from Trump, but on the grounds that that the infection is now on the other side. Although, by the way, no one, no, it's no, all no one is making okay. a big, you know, there's there's not, um, of course, discussion about, um, you know, sort of the public safety of the Biden campaign. <laughs> Which is why it's so dishonest. Like, who's going to pressure Joe Biden if he was like, I, you know, this is just too dangerous. This person's radioactive. I can't go anywhere near him. Echoing the sentiments of the progressive left in the press. Who's going to pressure him and say, you know, the, the public really deserves this, this debate as we, which we were privy to two weeks ago. This is such an insult to the public to not give them a fullest understanding of these two candidates. No one's going to say that. I, I honestly don't know. I think there is actually, there is, there will probably be an implicit ready understanding that the best thing for Biden is for the race to freeze in place now because he's because the data suggests he's up nine to ten points. And so therefore, you know, why should Biden do anything to give Trump some daylight, uh, you know, or give Trump an opportunity to give him some daylight and yell at him about Hunter or do whatever it is that he would do in a debate? And that's where he'll be defended, right? The, the idea will be that, again, the press panicked that they will play any kind of a role Helping Trump secure a second term will do anything and say anything to help Biden get through his, you know, uh, achieve his strategy. I'm sorry if you guys can hear the sirens behind me, but um, 
there's one there's one car driving in New York and apparently it's speeding. So uh, and it's being chased by by a cop. So uh, it's rather exciting because Abe and I are in the office together. We are in separate offices, but we are actually in the office together doing the podcast for the first time since February or March. Yeah, been a been a little while. Yeah, yeah. Noah's not here because, of course, he's 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 taking the pecans out of the mini bar, <laughs> right? Or the cashews. What 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 costs more? Well, that's the a pecans or the cashews? Hotel he's in. Yeah. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Uh, okay, so we will. I hope you guys have a wonderful weekend. Uh, we will reconvene on Monday for Noah Rothman, Christine Rosen, and Abe Greenwald. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.